0: All right, hold on to it. Your sins, not in part, but the whole, have been nailed to the cross, and you bear them no more. Remember it as I continue this reading for us. If you were here last week, I said last week that what we're going to do this week is look at actually chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Samuel, which is obviously a, a, a lot of material that is there, so we're not going to look at every detail of these chapters, nor frankly even read it. And I've chosen a couple of selections there in Chapter 5 and then now in Chapter 6, and I'll summarize the parts in between those as I read it for you. So, as always, I want to invite you to follow along with me, either in your Bibles or in your bulletins, whichever you find more convenient as we look at this portion of God's Word. By the way, if you've ever wondered where some of the ideas for the old film, uh, The Raiders of the Lost Ark, came from. Uh, You'll recognize some of those things in the text that I'm reading for us today, uh, and you'll see where they got some of the concepts for in that movie. So this is the word of God. I'm going to pick it up where we left off uh, in chapter 5 with verse 1. I'll read through verse 9. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. And the same thing continues on in Gath. Basically what happens between now and the section that I'll pick up reading in just a moment is this. As the ark travels to these various cities in Philistia, uh, we encounter the same types of problems in each place. And basically the, the, the idea is, okay, how do we get rid of the Ark of the Covenant of God? And so the Philistines consult with the priests and they come up with a plan by which to send the Ark back to Israel. They, they get a cart and they attach to the cart uh, two cows who have been separated from their calves. So they take their calves and put them away and take the two cows and hook them to the cart and they put the ark and various offerings on top of the cart. And the idea is we're gonna send it off on its own, no driver or anything like that. And if it goes straight to Israel, in other words, if if the mother cows don't do what mother cows would be want to do, which is to return to their calves, but instead go straight along the road and go over to Israel, we will know that indeed the ark was the problem. If on the other hand, they just kind of turn around and go back to see their calves, will know that this was all just like a coincidence, a, a bad coincidence, the tumors came, it just happened that we had the ark at the same time. So they do that, they load the ark, uh, and the ark travels over to Israel exactly as providence, the hand of providence would take it, and it arrives in a village, which is a border village between the territory of Israel at that time and the territory of Philistia, uh, Beth Shemesh and it gets to Beth Shemesh and as it comes into that village the people rejoice as they see the ark of the covenant returning into the village there are Levites there they offer sacrifices and everything seems to be restored uh, because the ark has returned and now I'm going to pick up the reading uh, at uh, verse 19 of chapter 6 and just read through the end of chapter 6 of so three verses here and he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Bethshemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for each and every one of your words. And while the words of this text, the content of them may seem to be to us quite distant from life in a modern world with cell phones and internet and lots of connections and lots of different gadgets that we have. We pray that you would help us to see what you have for the people of God then and for us now. We pray that you would help us to glean from your word, to understand it well, and to apply it to our lives appropriately. And Jesus, we ask this in your great name, amen. The Ark of the Covenant takes center stage in these chapters. It is called by a variety of names uh, throughout these three chapters. It's called the uh, the Ark of God, the Ark of the God of Israel, the Ark of the Lord, or most fully, it is called the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts who was enthroned on the cherubim. That's its full title. Samuel, so bright and hopeful a prophetic figure has moved completely off stage in these chapters. It's kind of odd. If you think back just for a moment to chapter three, where we ended chapter three, we ended chapter three with the word of God through Samuel being established throughout Israel. That seems like a good thing. Well, it is a good thing. You have the word of God coming through the prophet, and then immediately having established him in this office as a spokesman for God. We have three chapters where his name is is not mentioned even once he's off stage completely and instead what we have is this arc of the covenant taking center stage now samuel's word is being fulfilled in chapter four so in chapter four we're seeing the outworking the confirmation if you will of samuel's being a prophet because that which the lord had told him in chapter three is taking place in chapter four but of samuel we don't hear. And so the spotlight goes off of Samuel and completely shines on the Ark of the Covenant in all of its dangerous glory. So what's the point? What is is the lesson for Israel here? And again, the question that I just incorporated into the prayer is, is there something here for us in this text as well. As we work our way through this text today, here's what we're going to do. We're going to be guided by questions that are embedded within this text. There are questions that are given by the narrator of this story through which he tells the story and by which he allows us as the readers, as the hearers of the story, to identify, ah, these are the These are the key things that are taking place along the way here. So each of the questions that I'm going to give for us, I'm not going to give them to you in advance because they're right in the text, are going to be guides for us as we look at this. The first of these questions comes very early in our story. It's in chapter 4, verse 3, and the question is this. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? How did we lose to these guys? Now, theologically, they attribute that to the Lord, but the question is very plain. How in the world did the Philistines of all people get the upper hand over us, over the people of God? More generally, you might say that this is actually a variant of the perennial question that comes up for all of us, for every generation, Why do bad things happen to good people? And that's essentially what Israel is asking here in their question about this. After all, we're the Israelites. We are the good guys in the story. So how in the world could this have happened to us? What is God doing? It's a good question. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines. It's a great question. They should have taken their time in answering the question. Perhaps what they should have done is go and ask Samuel, go and ask a prophet of the Lord why we were defeated. That would seem to make sense. It would seem to make sense that they should go to him and inquire of the will of God, but instead they decide to quickly bring out the big gun. Let's go and get the Ark. After all, the Ark is over there in Shiloh and we know the old stories about the Ark. We know how the Ark of God led the people in the wilderness. We know how the Ark of God helped the people as they crossed into the promised land. We know how the Ark of God was used by God in defeating, for example, Jericho. Ark is over there in Shiloh. We just lost a battle. Answer, go get the Ark of God. In Numbers chapter 10, verse 35, we read this about the Ark. And whenever the Ark set out, Moses said, arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. Okay, so that's what they're hoping here. They're hoping that the same kind of thing that worked then is going to work now when it comes to the ark. But if we, if we consider this for just a moment, and I think this is fairly clear for us as we look at the text, there are significant problems, things that are not equivalencies between then and now as it relates to the ark itself. One of those is that this use of the ark that we see in this passage is all of the people's initiative. It is their idea. They are not following the Ark. They have gone to get the Ark and do what they want to do with the Ark, whereas in all of these other places, it is the Lord through his prophets and through the outsetting of the Ark that leads the people to follow. They have no command of the Lord to go into this battle or to go and get the Ark of the Covenant and to put it in front of them. The second thing that strikes us, right from that very, I know it was a very small section that I read there from that passage, is the prayer of Moses. The prayer of Moses is that the Lord Himself would come and do these things, that the Lord Himself would cause the enemies to flee before Israel. But instead, as we see here, the Ark is treated as an object of power in and of itself, something something that can be handled, manipulated, governed by men. We have this need. We have this object. Let's apply object to need and solve the situation before us. Blake referred to it as a talisman. uh, And that's a fine way to consider it. It perhaps is too casual of a way to say this, but for us, talisman is probably an odd word to us. What's not such an odd idea to us is good luck charm. I mean, we think of that as something small, right? A rabbit's foot, I don't know, whatever whatever else we think of as a good luck charm. But that's essentially the way they are treating the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant in this passage. To quote uh, Marcus Brody, writers of the lost ark, an army which carries the ark before it is what? I'm not even going to say it. I need one person to say it. An army that carries the ark of the Lord before it is invincible. Thank you. It's invincible. Or, if we go back to the Bible, or not. <laughs> it's invincible or it's actually not invincible. Israel got the ark, had the ark in front of it and Israel was defeated Israel was defeated the ark was captured and so the question becomes in fact now more complex more intensified than it had had been before now it's not only a question of why did the Lord defeat us in battle but how in the world could this have taken place when we had the ark we had the Lord of glory in front of us in battle, how can this possibly be? There are actually two answers to this question. We can answer this question. It's not just a rhetorical question. We can answer this question. How could these things be? Why did this defeat take place? Answer number one is the one that is most clear for us. These things are taking place in fulfillment with the prophetic word. The man of God came to Eli and told about the judgment that would be upon his household That same prophetic word from the man of God was then confirmed by Samuel, who spoke nearly the exact same words to Eli about judgment falling upon his house. And so as we read this story, particularly chapter 4, we know exactly what is taking place here. God is doing this because of the evil priestly family of Eli. He is judging them, and in a way that's actually beneficial to the people, When an evil, it's it's a bad thing in general, but when an evil priesthood is removed, that is a benefit for the people. Why is God doing this? Because of the sin of Eli and his family. But one might then say, fair enough, I understand why Eli and his family would be judged, but it seems like a lot of other people were involved in the punishment against Eli and the family. How do you explain that? we actually do not have to wonder we have scriptural commentary on this very section in the psalms now we could go to first samuel 7 which we'll go to obviously next week but let me let me go to the psalms and allow the psalmist to answer the question of what is taking place here if turn here later just listen to it while i read it psalm 78 is a record of god's dealing with israel his history of how he dealt with Israel and how the Israelites responded to him. And after getting to a section in which God has brought the people into the land and given given them their various inheritances, which took place in the book of Joshua, then we move into Judges and we read this from Psalm 78 beginning at verse 56. And yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God And did not keep his testimonies. But turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow. For they provoked him to anger with their high places. And moved him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, he was full of wrath. And he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh. Okay, this is the the ark coming out of Shiloh now. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity, allowed it to go into Philistia, to be captured there. His glory to the hand of the foe, the Philistines now have the glory of the Lord, Ichabod. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage, Fire devoured their young men, and their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. Why? Why? How could this all take place this way? Israel presumed on their position. They presumed on it. They considered themselves to be de facto the good guys. We're the good guys. Why do bad things happen to good people? And God's response is who's good? Who's good? Tell me who the good guys are in the story. You who have lifted up high places. You who have worshipped idols. You who have turned your back on the Lord, the covenant, and the commands that I gave you. Are you trying to identify yourself as the good people in the story? Hmm. Interesting. Interesting thought that you have. It was a great question. A great question. Why has the Lord defeated us before the Philistines? The answer was not because we didn't have the ark. And the solution was not go get the ark. Why did the Lord defeat them before the Philistines? The answer was repentance. The answer was sin and repentance. Not the presence or lack of presence of the ark. So the ark of God is then captured. Which seems like the time of the end of all things. Being at hand. The Philistines are more powerful than Israel. Dagon is more powerful than Yahweh. Ichabod. whither the glory. And then we get this classic vignette at the start of chapter 5. From a story. From inside of Philistia. Philistia... Uh, a map here, Mediterranean, over on this side right here, the five main cities of Philistia right along the coast of the Mediterranean. From inside of Philistia, from inside of Ashdod, one of the major cities, and from inside of the temple of Dagon, where Dagon himself sat. You see, you see what this is here? This, this is an inverse. This is is a getting to the most inglorious place. Where does the Ark of God typically dwell? In the land of Israel, in the place, the city of God's appointing. The Ark of God dwells in the Holy of Holies, in the center of the temple. It dwells in the most glorious place. And now we find it in the beginning of chapter 5, in the most inglorious place on earth is there is there a more hopeless impotent inglorious place on earth than at the foot of Dagon's temple of Dagon himself in Ashdod in Philistia parenthetical spoiler there is there is a more inglorious place than that it is on the cross on Calvary, the place of the skull outside of Jerusalem where the Son of Man is nailed to a cross and then buried in the earth. That's more inglorious than this. Nevertheless, this is where our story is right now. And parentheses. Back to this story. This is kind of like those movies where the action hero, and it could be the action hero, it could be the villain of the story, but let's for the sake of it say where the, the, the action hero in the story allows themselves to be captured so that they can get into the heart of the place, whatever it is. That's the only way for them to get inside. And then from the inside, what they will do is serve to destroy that which they couldn't get in on the outside or from the outside. Kind of like Samson. Like Samson ends up in the middle of things and destroys from the inside of his enemies. The lesson is plain. The lesson is plain. God doesn't need Israelite armies. He doesn't need a tent at Shiloh. He doesn't need priests. And let me now take this again right to the New Testament for a moment. He doesn't need the sword of Peter. He doesn't need you, and he doesn't need me. He does not need anyone or anything to maintain his glory. He's free. He's sovereign. He's triune, and he is almighty. And without going into all of the details of the story, that spells trouble for Dagon. Dagon. good to have that God around you and it spells trouble for the Philistines as well the Lord who defeated Israel is now the Lord whose heavy hand is upon the Philistines and I won't go into this in detail but I just want to say because I've referenced it already before it was already brought up to us in chapter two there's a play that's going on here between the words the, the ideas of things being heavy and the glory of God. Okay, remember that in Hebrew, those are the same words. And so when we read that the hand of the Lord was heavy on the Philistines, you could read that, and, and it's a word play to say, the hand of the Lord was glorious upon the Philistines. It was the glory of God, the weightiness of God, that was pushing down upon the Philistines. It was God's glory that was the problem in the middle of that inglorious place. And it leads to the question. If the first question we already looked at, the first question was, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? The next question is actually asked twice. It's asked in chapter five and it's in chapter six. It's in chapter five, it's in verse eight. What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? It's in chapter 6 as well. What do we do with the ark of the Lord? That becomes the question for them. They thought they thought they had captured the prize of prizes. They thought they had captured in this battle lightning in a bottle. It was a lightning in a bottle kind of moment or at least thunder in a box. If it's not lightning in a bottle, we've got thunder in a box We've got Israel's God, and we know something about this God. We know something about the way that he worked in Egypt, and we have got it. But, of course, it turns out to be a lot more trouble than it's worth. Fallen deities, tumors, rats, plagues, Egypt-like judgments follow the ark of God in its tour around Philistia into the various cities. To which the answer is, send it away. Get rid of it. Give it back. However we can do it, let's get rid of this thing that has come into our midst and have, has caused so much trouble for us. Let's get rid of the curse. And so a conference is held, and the priests are brought in, and the question is, all right, how? How do we get rid of it? And, of course, they do not have any light of revelation from God's word instructing them in how to handle the things of God, the most holy things. So they devise a plan, and they send the ark on its journey back. I do want to point out two things that I think are instructive to us from the way that they deal with the ark. One is that the priests say that when you send it back, you have got to send it back with a guilt offering. They understand. They understand that before this God, they are guilty. And they have to do something about that guilt. They have to their solution is nothing that you would think God would smile on, but nevertheless, they recognize guilt before this God and this need to make appeasement in some particular way. And secondly, they say something that's actually, I think, pretty significant for. Philistines to say in chapter 6 verse 5 it says this uh, pardon me so you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel and this is back to the play on the words take the weight that he's put upon you and give the weight give the glory back to the God of Israel I think that says something although this is a particular episode I think it affirms What exists in the heart of mankind when God is actually able to come out of a box? I think there's something in mankind that says, you know what? I'm guilty, and I should give this God glory. I owe him glory. So the ark travels. The ark travels providentially, guided into Israelite territory. It arrives at Beth Shemesh, a small town. And again, just to kind of complete the geography for you, if Jerusalem is here, Beth Shemesh is due west about 15, 20 miles from there and another 15, 20 miles you run into Philistia. So that's the, that's the progression of things here uh, just to put it in our minds a little bit. It r- arrives at Bethshemesh, where they rejoice when they see it coming and praise God there are Levites in this town. There are those who have been appointed to care for the holy items of God. Those who know how to take care of such things, such articles. And so they do that. They offer sacrifices to it. And we're tempted at this point in the story to breathe a sigh of relief. The ark has returned. The glory of Israel and Israel's God has returned. All's well on the Western Front. Until we read where I picked it up for us in verse 19. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. If looks could kill, here's a look by the looker. And the looker is killed by this particular look of the things of God. In Numbers chapter 5, again, if it's something you're interested in, you can look there uh, later. In Numbers chapter 5, we find instructions for how to handle the ark and the various furnishings that are part of the tabernacle. And that involves veils and it involves coverings. And there are warnings that go along with the instructions that are there. Warnings like, do not touch the holy things lest you die. And they shall not go in and look on the holy things, even for a moment, lest they die. Marion, don't look at it. For those of you who remember the line, the scene in Raiders, where it come from, it comes from right here. Don't look at the Ark of God. Of course, the command is violated at Beth Shemesh, and death is the result. A great blow. And that great blow that takes place at Beth Shemes leads to our final two questions. They're asked in, chapter, in verse 20 of chapter 6. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall he go up away from us? We'll take the second question first and then come back to the first. How ironic. How ironic a question is on the lips of the Israelites here. Israel, who wanted to get the ark to solve their Philistine problem, now asks the exact same question the Philistines had asked How do we get rid of it? It's not a blessing, it's a curse. It brings destruction wherever it goes. Who will take it? But the first question is the key that unlocks all three chapters that we've just looked at. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? this question is asked in a variety of ways throughout scripture. I've already pointed I've already included two of them in the service this morning. The first is found in Psalm 24. It was our call to worship. And the call to worship, put it this way, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Or on the front of your bulletins, you'll find the verse from Malachi You're familiar with it because of the Messiah and Handel's arrangement of the verse. But the question remains there in the book of Malachi regarding this messenger of the covenant. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? Indeed, he's coming, but will you be able to stand at all in that day? That's the question. It's asked all over scripture, how can we stand in the presence of God? Now the psalmist provides an answer. It was on your lips this morning in the call to worship. Who can stand before God? He who has clean hands and a pure heart can stand before God. But in our passage, the Philistines and the Israelites have learned the hopelessness of that royal standard. The answer is given. But who's that? Who's that person? Who has clean hands and a pure heart? Show them to me. What the Philistines and the Israelites learned is that it is better, if possible, to avoid the presence of God, to keep it far away from you, for it is a dreadful thing. For sinners to come into the presence of the Lord, this holy God. The presence of God has led to defeat without discrimination. It has led to defeat for Israelites, it has led to defeat for Philistines. Reflecting on that idea, the Apostle Paul asks, as a Jew, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greeks, are under sin. That's the lesson here. Both Israelites and Philistines, priests and parishioners, are under sin. All right, so what does this all say to us? I don't imagine that any of you have a statue Dagon in a closet at home. If you do, let's talk after service um, and and think about that. This passage will not resolve the current, the ongoing, the ever-present Israeli-Palestinian disputes or instruct us in how to guard or not guard borders Well, at least it might tell us how not to guard our borders. Don't take the Ark of the Covenant and go and put it on the border and think that that will be the way to guard a border. And we don't have a replica of the Ark. There's no replica of the Ark behind us. There is something red with a covering. It's just an old table that I found in the basement. So that's all that is uh, back in the center here. No replicas of the Ark. So what does this have to say to us? I think there are two things, brothers and sisters, that we ought to be at least provoked by when we look at a text like this. The first is a call to examine our hearts. The sin of both the Israelites and the Philistines was thinking that they could control, they could manipulate, they could use God to advance their own ends. They trifled with God. They treated him lightly and then felt the judgmental weight of his glory. I think it is worth us individually asking ourselves the question, and I'm not going to try and enumerate how this might be, but just asking ourselves the question, are there ways in which I do the same thing? Are there ways in which I treat God lightly, in a trifling manner. Do do I look at God as the end in and of himself, or is he become, for me, a means to an end, a means to a happy life, a comfortable life, a guilt-free conscience, a happy marriage, whatever? God, the advice columnist, who periodically guides us along the way. Are there ways that I am trifling with God, treating him lightly, treating him casually? Have I compartmentalized God and bring him out only when I have a particular need? So I don't spend time really thinking about his glory, but when I hear of a sickness or when I myself am sick, then I bring God out. Is his glory a first thought for you? or an afterthought. Just ask yourself the question. Ask yourself that question, and and ask the Spirit of God to do what he does. Search your heart. Try you and know. And see if the Lord reveals something to you. That's the first thing, I think, that comes out of us here. The second thing, though, is this. We need to know if there's an answer to the question, who can stand before the Lord, this holy God? That's not just some kind of ancient question. It's not, please hear this, it is not merely a theological puzzle. How do you solve the theological puzzle of who can stand before a holy God? How does that take place? It is the essential existential question of humanity. Now it's not your question if your God is in a box. If your God is in a box, that's not your question because you've learned to ignore God. You've learned to trifle with God. But if your God has gotten out of the box and is beginning to prick at your heart just a little bit, then the question becomes, how can I deal with a God who is holy like this? How can I stand in his presence? Because I'm well aware of my inadequacies. And if you want to look at this as as a non-Christian, you could consider it that way. But you can feel the exact same thing as a Christian as well in our walk with God. When we see our sin and the repetitive nature of it, we ask ourselves that question. We have that feeling. I can't stand. Existential moment. I have to stand before you every Sunday. Every Sunday I feel the unworthiness that I have to have to stand in this place. I feel like I'm called to it, and brothers and sisters, I hate it, because it's dreadful. It's dreadful, because there's a lot of times where I'd rather be under the pew, or out of the church, than have to stand and declare the prophetic word of the living God. Can anyone stand in the presence of this holy God, the unequivocal answer? not a theoretical question, it's not a hypothetical question, not rhetorical. The unequivocal answer of the prophetic word of God is that God has received his incarnate son, Jesus Christ, into his presence. He is the faithful, the holy high priest who has offered himself, who suffered in glory, who put himself in the most inglorious position on the face of the earth, in the deepest of the depths. was raised up, was raised up out of that place and brought in, not into some image, not into some copy of the Holy of Holies. That's the tabernacle and the temple. They're just copies. They're copies of the heavenly reality in which now Jesus has been brought and resides in the presence of God. As the eternal son of God, he ever dwelt in the presence of his father, but in his incarnation, death, resurrection, something different took place. A man, a man now dwells in the presence of God. A human, the God-man to be sure, but a human now dwells in that place, in the holy of holies. And by his sacrifice, he has made a way, made a path for us to experience instead of destruction. The verse that's on the front of your bulletin, it was our New Testament reading last week. Instead of destruction, times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. What a transformation. That's what Peter says. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ that for you, instead of destruction, you might find times of refreshing. Do you think anybody in 1 Samuel 4 through 6 could imagine times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord? Hardly. But now a man. Now a man stands in that place. And so Paul writes, through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The weight of the glory of God will do one of two things. It will crush you and destroy you or It will be to us wonderful, sweet, refreshing, substantive. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? The answer is Jesus is able. And in him, and by faith in him, you are able. Apostle Peter says, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm. in it. Lord, help us. Help us not to treat you lightly. In every corner of our lives, help us not to treat you casually. To think that It's just a buddy relationship that we have with you, the Almighty, the Holy One. But thank you for your Son, our Savior, and our hope. And thank you for the invitation, for the call, for the assurance, for the promise, for the times of refreshing that we now have in your presence because of him. Help us to grow in those things and help us to stand firm in it. When the seas of doubt, the guilt of sin, when the recognition that all is not well in our hearts, when that all rears its ugly head in our lives, help us to stand firm in the true grace. We ask in your name. Jesus, the Christ. Amen.